This week, we're in Belgrade, Serbia with 17-time Grand Slam champ Novak Djokovic. Don't put me on spot here. <laughs> Just before the coronavirus pandemic shut down the world, we got an all-access look into the tennis star's life. How confident are you that you'll have the career Grand Slam record? <laughs> Djokovic shares his changed attitude about the war that threatened his family and country. I see this, you know, stealth plane just flying and just dropping things. Opens up about marital challenges. And I realized actually up to that moment that the relationship with some of the closest people in my life were quite superficial and shallow. Plus, we check out how their foundation is helping local kids. 51 or 2 percent children were not attending any early childhood programs. But first, we sit down at his late grandfather's apartment where he spent much of his childhood. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to start by taking you back to 2007. Uh, at the time, you're third in the world. Next year, you win your first Grand Slam. But no matter what you tried, I believe at the time, whether that's lifting weights, biking for hours, changing coaches, I think you underwent nasal surgery to improve breathing. Fast forward to the 2010 Australian Open, which I think was one of the lowest points of your career at the mm -hmm. time. Um, tell me about a doctor that was watching that tournament on television that changed everything for you. Yes, his name is uh, Igor Tretojevic and um, for some reason, I, in Australia in particular, I was always struggling very early in my career with uh, respiratory issues, uh, uh, kind of mild uh, version of asthma and uh, uh, just suffocation during the night uh, for many years since I was seven years old. And for some reason, you know, as the time was passing by, all these allergies were gaining more I guess intensity uh, in terms of the reaction. I, I felt that it was just getting stronger and stronger. And uh, the place where I felt it the most was always a tennis court. And that's where you know emotions kick in, expectations, pressure. And when you mix it all together, you get formula that is causing you to uh, to really experience experience some some major health problems and issues on the court. And and because of it, I, I was retiring matches and I was, uh, uh, it took me a lot of time to recover. So uh, Dr. Igor uh, reached out to uh, people that uh, <coughs> we have some friends in common and they reached out to my parents. And, you know, when I met him, I, I did a couple of sessions and I, and I, and I um, you know, felt really a big difference. Um, that's, that was the first time that I got introduced to the quantum, uh, quantum physics, to the quantum field world, to the biofeedback. He had uh, uh, all this analysis and overview of, of my emotional body, of my mental body, of my physical body, on all the food allergies and everything that I was experiencing. And so we started slowly uh, taking off layer by layer and really going, uh, going deep into um, into things that are related to my health and trying to understand what is the core of it. So, of course, diet was one of the most integral uh, part of the problem and, and changing the diet was uh, something that allowed me to um, get rid of the allergies and everything, particularly gluten and dairy that I removed from my diet um, and refined sugar. 
And um, so it was, a, it was a change, but I was very determined because I, I could feel instantly, right, after the first session, second session with him, I could, I could sense that there is an improvement. Family was initially concerned when you were losing yeah. weight, right? Yes, yes, they, um, they were initially concerned. Um, and I was actually start, start, you know, starting to um, get rid of the red meat as well because I felt like I had also... Um, I had to put a lot of energy and effort uh, into digestive process to, to digest the, the meat. So, and, and that would take a lot of essential energy that I need for, you know, for my focus, for the recovery, for the next training session or for the next match. That, that was the, 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 the initial point of the journey that got me to the point where I am at the moment where I'm eating plant-based, you know, where I'm not eating any animal products. So it's a really interesting journey that started when, when you mentioned in 2010. What do you eat in an average day today? Uh, well, I, I start off always um, when, I, when I rise from the bed, I, I start with uh, warm water and lemon so I can help my body detoxify. Um, and then I, I would have uh, celery juice on an empty stomach and then I would make a break and then I would have my, my smoothie, um, green smoothie with different algae um, and, and, and different fruits and uh, superfoods, um, great supplements that I use that uh, allow me to have mental clarity, you know, feeling good, uh, longevity, I guess, and, 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 and different benefits on, on health. And I eat a lot of fruits um, for the first part of the day, uh, salads. Um, I don't like to eat um, any food that would uh, require much of a uh, much energy for digestion, especially in the first part of the day, because that's when I need the most energy for my training. So I'm keeping things quite light, and I would have probably like um, you know uh, pseudo grains like uh, quinoa and millet and uh, wild rice. Uh, sweet potato and normal potato, like steamed or boiled. You were coached by the famed uh, coach Jensek. By six, you're already thinking you can be number one in the world. Why? So I fell in love with it when I was when I was four, and you know my, my dad bought me a tennis racket, and um, they were making three tennis courts in front of the restaurant, which were run by my parents uh, back in a mountain resort here in Serbia. And we used to spend a lot of time there. And me, my dad, my uncle, and my aunt, they were all competitive skiers. And my father used to play soccer as well. And my mom graduated from the University of Sports. So um, there, there is an a, athletic gene in, in the family that runs. And um, so it's no accident that I ended up playing sport. But it is a little bit odd that I started playing tennis, uh, which um, was quite unknown in my family. But I think it was a sign of a destiny, three tennis courts being built when I started watching tennis on the TV. It was a Wimbledon finals. And Jelena Gencic showed up very, very soon after that with her camps. And uh, my, my parents, I, I'm very grateful that they, um, you know, first of all, uh, supported me and, and my wish to, to play tennis as a, as, a, as a kid. How long did they hide from you the sacrifices that they had to make so you could pursue mm. your dreams? For a long time, they, they did hide and they um, succeeded in, in uh, hiding a lot of things that, uh, that made them suffer and that they had to sacrifice in order for me to 
you know, pursue my love for the for tennis, my love for for sport. Um, but uh, there were certain things that I, I just they could not hide from me. I could I could clearly see. I remember that at one point my dad took out uh, a, a ten Deutschmark bill um, and put it on the table, and he said, "This is all we got." You know, which is equivalent to ten dollars nowadays, maybe even less. Because at, at that time, it was really not about tennis. It was more about us surviving as family and having bread to eat during the day. And, um, but somehow, you know, my parents found a way. And they were a great team. Because uh, my mom, she was, um, and she still is, uh, a pillar of the family. She's that stability. She holds everybody together. And she's an incredibly strong woman, uh, truly an inspiring woman that has had to handle four men in, in, in a very small uh, apartment um, with all our different needs and activities. And she did everything a, a, a one woman could, could possibly do. And she was preparing breakfast, lunch, dinner, cleaning, washing, ironing, uh, picking up at school, bringing to school. She was, I mean, superwoman, literally. And, uh, and my dad, on the other hand, he was, uh, he was the one that was providing. And he was the, the one that was also a visionary. But at that time, where you had a dollar of 10 Deutschmarks on the table for the whole family of five, you know, it took a lot of, a lot of guts to really um, stick with, uh, with, with uh, the vision of supporting me to become a successful professional tennis player. He still is in, in my life as uh, someone that, uh, that uh, uh, finds always strength when you need it the most. And that's where I, f I think also I've where I inherited that, that trait uh, on the court when I, when I need to somehow find a way and find that strength. I think uh, that's the dad in me. How much consideration did you and your brothers give to switching nationalities uh, and playing for England? back in the day yeah. when finances were yes. really tight? Well, uh, fortunately for us, I, I, I uh, was doing really well uh, in the international tournaments under 12 and under 14 years of age. And um, so I got spotted by uh, tennis agents, you know, traveling around in this, this, this junior events. And, um, and then we got offered to... Um, to switch the nationalities to British nationality when I was, I think, 14 years old. And it was, uh, it was very tempting at that time for, for, my, for my parents. Very, very tempting because of the... Would have solved hard. your problems. Yeah, exactly. My family, my parents would get a job. My family would have a house. I mean, it was a great, great deal. And I'm not saying that it would particularly be wrong if, I, if we did that. Who knows uh, where the journey would take us, but uh, I think life has just arranged things and organized things in such a way that it was ha had to be that way. What do you remember from the conversation where you guys as a family ultimately decided to turn it down? Well, it was mostly decision of my parents, to be honest. You know, Yes, I was, of course, included and involved in the conversations, and I was... I... <laughs> I did... I personally didn't feel it from the beginning. I just, I, I said, listen, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to go and live in England where I don't know anybody. 
I want to stay here with my friends. I have my school, I have my friends, I have my life, I have my country, I have my language, I have everything here. I just didn't feel that I would, I, I would feel happiest there. But I understood that it was a decision that my parents had to take because it was, uh, it was not only about, I guess, how you feel somewhere, but it's just whether we can survive as family uh, and, and something had to be sacrificed. So if, if, if I wanted to pursue the tennis career, then, then, then they had to strongly take in consideration moving to, to London. But um, dad and mom, you know, made that risk turned down the offer and uh, we stayed here. And I wanted to talk to you about uh, clutch moments. When you're in those situations, how do you avoid distractions? Uh, consciously breathing first. That's, that's probably the, the simplest thing that you could do, but probably the most effective. I think the experience of being in this particular situation so many times before in my career helps me every next time that I have to face the adversity and face the distractions and you know my thoughts and what-ifs and fears and, and so forth. I think everyone goes through that thought process. It's just, um, and, and I don't think it's particularly bad. I was thinking it's, it's bad, so I was trying to um, ignore it or I was trying to shut it down. But I think the major transformation in a positive way for me started when I was starting to acknowledge it and, and, and accept it as, as part of me. It's, it's, it's there, my ego is there, my fears are there, everything is there. It's present, but then how will I address it in a way that is going to help me to overcome that, to transform it into positive fuel that is going to help me overcome the clutch moments that you talked about um, just feel happy and joyful and present on the court and get the best out of that experience. How, how do you do it? Well, I, I, I practice a lot of mindfulness. Um, so, you know, meditation, you know, journaling, talking with my team, with my parents, with my wife, with, with everybody who is around me, trying to address certain, um, with my, of course, uh, life coaches that I have. Um, spiritual guides and that I have as well that help me um, address certain emotional you know uh, issues or traumas or whatever it is that 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 uh, tend to appear on the court so when it appears on a break point when I'm facing a match point or break point or you know clutch moments uh, they do tend to surface but they are, they, uh, I, I, ma I managed to, to, to gain the control over them much quicker and I managed to, to impose my positive affirmation and positive feeling uh, or if that doesn't happen then I just try to be uh, conscious that I have to accept that moment that that's going to happen but I focus on my breathing and I focus on being in the moment and, and what needs to be done next moment which is playing the right shot, positioning myself well on the court and just focusing on executing the point right. And, and that's easier, much easier said than it's done. And, and I think uh, anyone who plays the sport in the highest level will understand that. It just takes uh, years of uh, devoted practice mentally, not just physically. Uh, and you have to do it. You can't expect others to really 
um, fix your emotional or mental issues. They can um, encourage you and they can empower you um, and they can understand you and they can give you tools, but you have to use those tools and do it the right way. The Olympics, uh, how tough in the Rio Olympics was getting eliminated in the first round? That was one of the most heartbreaking moments I had in my, my career. Really? Yes. Um, because I, I, I built uh, with myself huge expectations for the Olympic Games in Rio. I was um, number one in the world. I won four slams in a row. I, I had, it was a peak of my career in terms of results, in terms of how I play, how I feel. I felt if there was ever a time for me to get the gold medal or fight for a gold medal, it was now. But because I guess I got injured, um, also because I, I built such a huge pressure and expectation on myself, I just, it was just unbearable. I, I was, it was too much. And, and uh, I, I, at the time, I just uh, wasn't aware how to, how to handle it in a proper way. And, uh, and I got injured and um, had to, um, you know, I, I lost the first round match against Del Pocho who went on to, to win a silver medal. And I still managed to play tight match, you know, two tie breaks, but it was, it was just very heartbreaking because uh, Olympics is obviously a, a, a biggest and most important sports manifestation in the history of sports. And, and representing my country in, in such event is a huge honor and privilege. And four years later, I have, I think, more experience um, mentally, emotionally, how to approach that. So I will make certain changes and corrections to my preparation prior to Tokyo and to how I go about things while I'm there um, because I want to treat it as any other tournament because in the past I was treating it as something completely different, which essentially it is. But I think in order for me to really get the best outcome, which would ideally be fighting for a medal, uh, I need to treat it as any other big tournament that I play individually. To what extent do you feel you get the credit that you deserve? <laughs> um, interesting question. I honestly don't really think about that so much. And I, or, or at least I'm not, do, I'm not thinking about it as much as I used to. I, I actually don't feel um, that I don't, ha don't have as much love from the crowds on the stadiums or for people around the world as much as maybe it's portrayed in the media. Uh, in contrary, I actually do feel a lot of love, acceptance and, and uh, appreciation and respect, most of all. And um, respect for me is, uh, is a very important element of love, which is the ultimate energy and the source that drives us all. So if, I have, if someone has respect to me, and, and I, 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 you know, of course I'll have respect to him. And it's the other way around. I have respect also for someone that doesn't think so fondly of me or doesn't like me, um, whatever it is. And that's okay. I'm really trying to focus most constructively the, all my life force and energy into, into really be, being the best 
person I could possibly be, really. And of course, uh, it is different when you're playing on a big stadium and then most of the stadium is cheering your name or most of the stadium is cheering your opponent's name. I mean, well, well, you said uh, when everybody's chanting Roger Federer's name, <laughs> as example, you've actually trained yourself to yeah. think as if everybody's chanting your yes. name. Explain that. Well, uh, it's not much to explain. It's really just a mechanism, I guess. It's just, uh, it's just, you, you, you know, your reality or your uh, experience in external life or whatever happens is just uh, the reflection, I believe, reflection of what's going on inside of you. So it, it might sound weird. It probably is weird for, for a lot of people uh, because obviously for everyone, everyone is saying Roger, Roger, Rafa, whatever it is. But, um, and I hear that too, part of me hears that too, of course, but part of me inside says, okay, I'm not going to let that, you know, bring you down or, um, you know, because of it, you, you might lose a tennis match or you're going to feel bad or you're going to feel angry or upset, but I'm going to help you feel better. And, and so I try to tr transform that into something that is useful for me. Um, in what ways do you think the three of you have pushed one another to be better? Meaning yes. you, Rafa, Roger? Yes. Well, we still do. I still, we still push each other. We still uh, drive each other to, um, to be the best we could possibly be on the, with the tennis racket on the court. Um, Roger has inspired me in many ways as uh, Rafa as well. I mean. Uh, Roger has, has particularly showed, not just me, but all the generation after him and, you know, how efficiently and smartly you can train and organize your private life, professional life in order to thrive, in order to be your best self, in order to be a champion, how to, you know, carry yourself on the court with dignity and everything. And, and um, Rafa, on the other hand, you know, taught me how to have this never die, never give up spirit, uh, this, this kind of respect for, for uh, you know, the sport, for your opponents. So I did learn a lot of things from them and I'm openly saying that even though they're my two biggest opponents, I, I, I try to, uh, you know, always tell myself, be open-minded, be open-hearted for, for learning from anybody. It doesn't need to be Rafa and Roger only, or be, it might be any, any, you know, someone that is ranked outside of top 100. I feel like uh, life is a continuous learning journey. How, how true is it that you and Rafa were close friends until you started beating him? <laughs> well, we look, uh, <laughs> we, have to, we have to define what close <laughs> friends means. So it's really not, we were never really so close as I would be close with, you know, my childhood friends or he would be with his friends. It's just, it's very hard, you know, because, you know, your main rivals, you're both fighting for something that only one can get, you know what I mean? And, and um, but we always had respect for each other because I think we are, we are all aware of how many kids look at us and look what we do, what we say, how we behave towards each other, towards the sport, towards other people, and the example that we give is something that is very important to all of us. How confident are you that when it's all said and done, you'll have the career Grand Slam record? 
I'm always very confident in myself. I think that uh, confidence is derived from self-belief. Self-belief is derived from, uh, I guess, uh, uh, clarity that you have. And, and clarity that you have is derived from uh, the love and joy for what you do, what you choose to do in your life. Of course, there are things that have to be sacrificed. Unfortunately, I wish to spend more time with my family, with my kids. Sometimes I have to leave them for a month or something like that, and that's, that's really hard. But at the same time, I, I'm very grateful that I have, you know, closest people in my life that still support me on this, on this great mission and, and understand that, uh, that that's the journey that has chose me. I, honestly, I, I do believe that also journey chooses you, not, not just the other way around. So I think that uh, I still have um, things to do here in the sport. And um, I believe I can, I can um, win most slams and, and, and um, break the record for the longest number one. And I believe th those, are, those are definitely my clear goals. Uh, but at the same time, they're not the only thing that motivates me. Um, on a daily basis, I, I, it's, not, it's not sustainable. It's not, it doesn't fuel me every day. What fuels me every day is something that is more related to my growth, personally. What's the likelihood you're still playing at 40? Uh, <laughs> um, look, I don't have, I don't believe in limits. I think limits are only illusion of your, your ego or your mind. I definitely want to go for a long time, but I, I know that at the same time I'll, I'll have to you know, maintain the right principles and the routine for to maintain the health and well-being of my body, mind, soul, and everything has to work in synergy and in harmony with my family, my life, private life. I'm aware that uh, the, the tempo and the amount of uh, tournaments that I'm playing is going to decrease very soon. So I, I, I will not be able to play on this intensity with this many tournaments and this much traveling uh, for a long time. So I might be playing at 40, uh, but that will probably be then just focusing on, you know, biggest tournaments and tournaments that mean the most to me. We're obviously s sitting right now at your like grandfather's uh, apartment here in, in uh, Belgrade. You've lived through two wars. The latter of which being uh, 1999 when, uh, you know, NATO, uh, you know, starts yeah. bombing uh, Serbia last 78 days. You and your family were living on a second floor apartment at the time. Yes. What do you remember seeing? What do you remember hearing? Well, first of all, uh, I, um, I'm sorry we don't have an apple here. Because uh, when I walked into this apartment, I was talking with, uh, with my wife about that. We were remembering the, um, the time of, of uh, our visits here as, as a couple as well, and me coming to, to visit my grandfather. One of the most profound memories would be him cutting an apple in front of me. And he, that's, that, was a, that was his thing. Regardless of what is happening in the world, he would come with his knife and with his apple and just cut it in a particular way that I still that I still use today. I use his technique, even though it's dangerous for my 
<laughs> for my fingers, but I do it anyway because it's just it, it's it's a very uh, fond memory of him. And this is the apartment where uh, where where, as I said at the beginning, I used to spend a lot of time uh, with my brothers, with my family, with my parents, uh, with my aunt and her family. So it was a lot of people, uh, particularly in '99 uh, uh, when. Uh, when we had uh, bombings, as, as you mentioned. We did live in the apartment that is a, you know, about 500 feet away from here. We would come always to, to this apartment and always to this building uh, every single night for God knows how many nights, but, but particularly 15, 20 nights uh, of bombing uh, because our building did not have a shelter. So this building had a shelter, underground shelter. So. It was just uh, a horrifying experience uh, for everyone, uh, particularly for children that were, <laughs> you know, we did not really realize what is happening, you know, why, is, why, why are the planes flying over our city and dropping bombs? Like, I mean, who does that? And, uh, but at the same time, <laughs> it's unfortunate to say that, but after a month, we, we just really stopped reacting to it. I mean, I remember I, I uh, was uh, celebrating my 12th uh, birthday party at the tennis club Partizan where I, where I grew up and um, you know during the happy birthday song there was a plane just flying flying over you know you can't really comprehend how horrifying and scary that experience is and how helpless you are I mean you're here on the ground and someone is flying over and just uh, dropping bomb in a second and just disappearing what about when you're outside one time and you slip? Oh yeah, that was the first, I think it was the first or second night or something like that of, of bombing. And so we were just about to fall asleep again. And then a huge explosion happened. And then my mom, she stood up very quickly and she hit the heaters and with her head and she felt unconscious. And so it was us crying because of the bombs and us crying because mom is not reacting and my dad is there and just mm -hmm. the, what is happening, you know. And so uh, luckily my dad manages to, to help my mom get back to, to, to herself normal as, as much as she could. And we collect our stuff quickly and just take uh, the necessities and we go out. There was no, there was no street lights, everything was shut off and and um, and I and, and and it was so loud that we could not hear each other we were very close to each other but we, we could not even if you scream they don't hear you and my dad was carrying my my, my brothers and my mom was running with stuff and then I slipped and I fell and as I turn around I look towards the building and I see this you know stealth plane just, just flying and just dropping things and and then the ground is shaking and then of course that's that's one of the most traumatic experience and images that I had in my childhood and that stayed with me till this day and we were lucky uh, I think uh, our family and families that we did not lose anybody that is very close to us there, there are a lot of people that lost very close people in their lives and that's that's a different level of suffering and different level of trauma I mean I, I can't even imagine the pain that I had to bear to, to go through that. There was a quote that you gave that I thought was interesting that where you said, you can carry the hatred, the revenge, the betrayal, the feeling of anger towards those who did that to you, to your people, to your country, but you can also use them as a tool to make you believe, to make you stronger. That's what I've learned to do. Mm. 
How so? Yes, it's interesting. I, I, I think I remember saying that. And at that time, I was still, uh, I was still upset. I was still angry. And, uh, but I used that in a way that fuels me to be successful in tennis. And, uh, but that changed. I, I, don't, I really don't have this emotion anymore. I, when I say I, I don't, uh, you will not forget, I will not forget, and a lot of people will never forget what happened. But at the same time, I don't think it's good for anybody to be stuck in the emotion of hatred, in the emotion of anger, rage, because someone destroyed your home and people and killed your close one. I mean, I can only imagine, you know, again, the amount of pain that you feel when you lose your close one. You know, how it is possible that, uh, that you know, big countries come together and bomb a small country, the helpless people on the street and, and just destroy everything. I just, I couldn't understand that. There is no justification for war. There is no justification for bombing, for killing somebody, for taking away the home. I mean, this is, you know, uh, an ultimate cruelty, you know. And um, that has made me and <laughs> everybody in Serbia very angry. Um, and the scars of, this, of, of these emotions, of this anger, still are today present in everybody. But I worked on myself, I, I must say, and, and on those emotions to uh, forgive. Because you need to forgive. Finally, uh, how can you be fueled more by anything but by love? And love is forgiveness. And, and, and that's my philosophy of life. And as hard as it, it might be, you know, but at the end of the day, you, you can and I think you should forgive because you have to move on, you know. If you're stuck in that emotion, what, you know, what are you going to make out of your life? I mean, it's always going to hold you back. It's always going to hold you down, not just professionally, but privately, emotionally. You know, it's hard. It's really hard. There's, there's people in, 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 in Serbia have suffered a lot, you know, in the last hundred years. In the First World War, over one million Serbian people died. Know, and uh, but look, that's that's a kind of a destiny, I guess, that we as people have here in this in this uh, region. Uh, but I still believe that that can make us stronger. I really uh, appreciate everything that I experienced in life because I know that those, particularly those times, have made me so so resilient and so strong, but also so appreciative of everything that I have in life today. You said your greatest achievement is your open mind. Yeah. Why? Because you need to have open mind in order to forgive, in order to move on. I mean, if you, if you have a closed mind, I mean, it's really hard to learn anything. Believe in love, believe in this universal force that, that, that binds us together, that unites us all. And when you open your heart and when you open your mind, then you are you know, more prone to improve and love and bring people closer and understand. I think most of the conflicts and in, in wars that happen today is because there's no understanding of really, like there's a lot of religious wars in the history of humankind, because there's no understanding. It's because I'm better than you and, uh, you know, my God is better than your God or whatever it is. It's like, uh, you know, 
I, I don't think that's the future that, that we want for our humankind and this planet. How about your greatest weakness? My greatest weakness? My greatest weakness is um, and greatest strength at the same time is ability or inability to um, comprehend things on a deeper level. Um, to be <laughs> more concrete, um, I feel I, I'm at my best when I understand that the power comes from within and that I can change everything inside, whatever is happening outside, whether it's tennis court, whether it's relationship with my closest ones, whether it's whatever it is, I can solve it inside because I can change the vibration and frequency that I'm resonating on and then the reality changes. Vulnerability is a, is a beautiful thing because when you're vulnerable, then you're emotional, then you're free, then you're, you know, you're kind, you're loving. So vulnerability is beautiful to show, especially for men. I see men a lot of, uh, a lot of times uh, they don't show their vulnerability because, in, in especially particularly in sports, you know, because you have to be macho, you have to be strong, and everything. But I think you know that shows me my the still the weaknesses that I have and 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 the the path that is still ongoing and that will probably never stop, a path of self-realization, of, of self-development and growth, and self-love, finally. But, you know, it, it, takes, it takes a lot of effort, you know, every day. You just, I try to be conscious of that. Children, uh, you have two. Uh, one anymore? <laughs> Oops, uh, tough question. I am really happy with, the, with our two children at the moment. Um, I'm going to give you a very political question, uh, answer here. Uh, we're, as couple, fine for now. But I'm just going to say for now. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that's not to say there couldn't be uh, more kids in the you future. You never know. Life is, uh, life is full of wonderful surprises. And, and we are so blessed to be parents of two angels that uh, are our teachers. Uh, they teach us how to, how to stay in the moment, how to be present, how to be joyful and playful. They awaken our inner, ch inner children that we've abandoned for years. So who's more interested in having more kids, you or the wife? I am. How many, how many more? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Don't put me on spot um, here. <laughs> what, how, how, did, uh, yeah. how did having kids uh, kind of yeah. change, it just kind of upend your life? Wow, I mean, I, when, I, when I became a father, I really never knew how uh, much more I can love and, and the dimension of emotion and love that, that I experienced uh, that day when Stefan um, came to us. It was just unexplicable and, and uh, uncomparable to anything else that I have personally experienced, achieved um, in, my, in my life. And I'm sure Yelena will say the same and agree. I mean, um, anybody who is a parent understands the amount of love and support and dedication, unconditional love that you feel towards your, your child um, and the responsibility. And your just your life, just 
completely shifts and turns around upside down. How do you think you'll go about finding a balance between all the opportunities that your success has created for your kids hmm. with not wanting to dampen motivation? Because obviously they'll be growing up in much different yes, circumstances much than different you. circumstances. There are, there are pros and cons of that, of course. The pros that they will not have the heartache and uh, the challenges and obstacles that we had financially, economically, obviously. But at the same time, uh, they will have to experience, I think, a much greater emotional challenges, I think, and, uh, and in their upbringing mentally to be regarded as the son or the daughter of and, and their journey of um, self-growth is going to be, I think, uh, really demanding. My daughter, Tara, she's obviously still, she's two or just over two years old and still very young, doesn't realize what is happening in tennis and who is who and what is happening. You know, she knows I go to play tennis and she knows, just knows that I hold a racket and I go with the bag and I play. And I come back and I put her to bed, that's all. Uh, and, and my boy, he already starting to realize what's going on. He went to see me play in Wimbledon, a couple of other tournaments now in Dubai recently as well for a match or two. And he's starting to, to understand. Um, and he's a very smart boy and very mature for his age. Uh, and he's handling it very well. That's something that is, that, 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 is, that is going to be a task of all of us, I think, to create circumstances where they can and, and conditions in life in, w in which they can thrive to be the best uh, versions of human beings that they possibly can. And whatever they choose to do in life, whether it's tennis, sport, arts, whatever, whatever they choose in life, we, are, we will be there to, to really support them all the way as any parent would do. For a two-year period starting in July 2014, you win 158 matches only 13 losses, six majors, four consecutive, which is as dominant a period as anybody's ever had in the, the history of the sport. Um, and you win the, the French Open in uh, June 2016, which I guess is the, the one major that had eluded you. And you said at that point, you just kind of lost your mojo. Um, yeah. Why were you wondering if you'd ever be able to get back to the, the place that you were at playing-wise? I was quite convinced that everything will be fine, and after that I'll keep on going, I'll keep on you know, dominating the tennis, tennis world, winning matches, and then I realized that it's not really like that. And then I realized that I came to the stage of my life and my career where I had to uh, dig deeper, and understand myself on a, on a much deeper levels than, than what I have had till that point. And um, I've put a lot of weight in my life and uh, people around me in their lives on winning the French Open and completing the four slams. But I think I probably put way too much weight on that, um, meaning the happiness would be dependent on me winning or not. And then I realized that when I won, I of course I was happy, I was achieved something that I wanted to achieve for so many years, but I was not 
fulfilled fully. Something was lacking. Uh, it was uh, some dark place where there was uh, some little child hidden in the corner, um, crying and asking for attention, uh, but not in a way through achievements, but in a way through, you know, emotions, through, through um, I guess, um, other ways of communication. How so? Um, well, I realized that uh, because of my devotion to tennis and because of the way that got me to achieve those things up to, up to that point, um, I left that inner child aside and, and I, I didn't, it, it didn't grow with me. And uh, in other words, I did not dedicate enough time and proper a way of uh, addressing and treating uh, myself on an, an emotional level, so I didn't grow up emotionally as much as I did tennis-wise. And, uh, and that's when I started uh, addressing that a bit more, and, and, and then I, I had to um, endure through that journey, and then my tennis results were suffering more after that. I, I, got, I got injured as well. And I'm super glad that I've done that. I just focus on uh, uh, on, on, on appreciating and understanding and accepting that something happened and it happened for a reason. I am a more mature, more grown person inside. I am, I'm, 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 I think, more enabled to deal with my emotions and deal with everything that life, you know, has to throw at me. Well, I, that's interesting because I mentioned I was listening to one of the podcast interviews yeah. you gave where you alluded to around the same time you were going through marital challenges. Yes. Um, what do you think you learned about yourself mm. having gone through that? Well, I learned that um, when you expect the least, it's when, you know, life will uh, give you something to work at internally. I really feel my relationship became uh, deeper, more significant, uh, more intrinsic. And I realized actually up to that moment that the relationship with some of the closest people in my life were quite superficial and shallow because I just didn't know how to handle that. What did it teach you about your wife? What did it teach me about my wife? Well, it, it taught me that uh, we have to go on this journey together. And that uh, she it's inevitable that she has to endure the same journey as I do at the same time. Otherwise, we can't stay together. And, uh, and, I, and I'm really <laughs> grateful and happy that uh, she embarked on the same journey, her own journey, but parallelly at the same time as, as I did. We were talking about uh, wanting to talk about charity and your book, uh, Serve to Win, that you wrote many years back. Uh, there's a Winston Churchill quote at, uh, in the book that says, we make a living by what we get, we but we make a life by what we, by give. What we give. Yeah. Um, I know you've been thinking a lot about how you can use your platform to create social change. Yeah. In what ways? Well, um, I've, I've, I've said a little while ago that tennis has allowed me to have a, a stage in which I can uh, communicate 
with youth, uh, particularly that I'm kind of focused on, and also through our foundation here in Serbia, and motivate them to be the best they can possibly be, to believe in themselves, to believe in their dreams, to believe anything is possible. And um, that's, that's something that is very dear and very important to me. I feel there is a, a much greater mission uh, in life than uh, in tennis than just winning a, a tennis trophy. Why uh, did you decide through your foundation to focus on early childhood development? Well, um, before well, we, we founded uh, the, the foundation in 2007 with my parents. Novak Fund. I, yes, exactly. And uh, for, for three, four years, we were helping everywhere. I mean, we were trying to help. We were, funding churches, schools, uh, uh, the people with different ailments. Tough to track progress. Just exactly, and we were all over the place. And, and then uh, UNICEF actually provided us staggering data that there was over 50% of children not attending any preschool programs. And then we, we wondered why, and it was partly financial reasons, partly culturally, because in our culture, you know, it's parents think it's much better for a child to be going up next to their grandparents and family rather than being in, in the kindergarten. And uh, so, th so then we, we said, okay, this is what we want to do, you know, because uh, there's a, an obvious uh, um, misconception of what kindergarten uh, represents and what early childhood development is and what it, what it means for, for humans' life. And then we, we back that up with the scientific uh, evidence that says, you know, from, from zero to seven years is the vastest growth of a human brain. So little by little, now almost 10 years later, we, you know, uh, we almost opened, I think, almost 50 and renovated uh, 50 kindergartens. We have uh, over 20, almost 25,000 children in the program. I'm really proud of the foundation's team as young people who are very motivated and very inspired uh, they know they're part of something that is much larger than all of us and it's affecting uh, education and children's uh, lives and 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 by consequence of that it's affecting the future of our country your long-term goals with the foundation would be what well um we are hoping we can have every single child in Serbia in the future attending one of the early childhood development programs. And that's, it, it is a big goal because 51 or 2 percent children were not attending any early childhood programs um, in 2011. Now we're 2020 and that has changed, um, but it's still a very long way. And uh, I think, uh, we, you know, we, we would like to probably go even go out from Serbia and, and, and start helping also other countries in the region and maybe in the world, but uh, right now we're focused here. Kobe Bryant, who we once featured for an episode of this program as well, uh, you had heartfelt words yes. on social media after his passing. Your fondest memory involving him over the years? When I 
was um, injured and had the surgery coming back from my surgery something wasn't clicking I mentally and game wise I was not making good results and I didn't feel mentally well so you know and, and uh, so I had uh, I had a phone call with him, several phone calls during that time, and I m met him as well when I went to States, and and he was so nice and so supportive and open, and he would either instantly give me an advice or direction or encouragement, or he would take time, think about it, and then come back to me. So he was there for me. He, he was truly... Um, uh, an amazing human being that you know happens to be one of the best basketball players of all time but his charisma and his personality I think exceeded his achievements as a basketball player um, first time I met him when I think it was about 10 years ago and I w went for the first game of Los Angeles Lakers and he absolutely had no reason to address me or spend time with me you know I was okay I was number three of the world at the time in tennis but the amount of time he spent with me in the locker room and speaking in Italian because you know he, you know was uh, born there and speaks Italian very well I speak Italian so I speak Italian English and the way he was embracing me and uh, bringing me closer to him um, allowing me to be the part of the team allowing me to be part of his life I mean that was something that um, I will never forget, I will always carry that memory with me. We are all suffering because of his death and uh, on Gianna as well, his daughter. But uh, there are angels, there were angels walking on, on, on earth and uh, there are angels now and um, um, I, can't, I can't imagine, you know, uh, the pain that Vanessa is going through with, with uh, uh, you know, rest of the children. I will just remember Kobe as, as you know, one, one of the biggest ins inspirations that I had in life, uh, not just in sport, but in life and in a human being. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my chat with Novak Djokovic. To see some tennis and workout tips from the 17-time Grand Slam champ, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.